Hi, this is James Devine, and I am an educator who has come out of the trenches. Listen in as my friend and colleague Dana Goodyear shares stories and tips from other educators who have come out of the trenches. Welcome to the Out of the Trenches podcast. This is Dana Goodyear. Thanks for listening. My next guest is Dr. Christopher Wyatt. He is an autistic self-advocate and father of two two neurodiverse daughters. He earned his doctorate while researching online education for students with autism spectrum disorders. His experiences living with physical and neurological differences shape his parenting. Wyatt consults with schools, businesses, and nonprofit organizations on issues of autism, neurodiversity, and active inclusion. Welcome to the podcast, Chris. Thank you for having me. Well, tell me about a time when you were in the trenches and managed to crawl out. I believe we are still in the trenches. Many of us who are parents with students who are in special education programs. Unfortunately, COVID revealed that special education, which was already understaffed nationally and experiencing shortages of both teachers and paraprofessionals, has been significantly altered both during the COVID uh, pandemic lockdowns and post-COVID. And the reason post-COVID, as we have seen that districts are struggling with funding issues, uh, with this return to normal, retention has been an issue nationally. So many of us who are parents with education backgrounds have opted to continue homeschooling because of the shortages in special education supports. So right now, many of us, myself, my wife included, we are in the trenches because one of our daughters, the school explained to us they could not under current staffing situation provide the supports that really are needed for her success. And we've heard this story throughout. It is not unique to our location. So I don't wanna say that this is, it's not a, a, a state issue. Mm-hmm. And that's something that I think is so important right now. Friends ask me, well, is this because you live in Texas? And I point out that my mother was in special ed in California. Mm-hmm. California, you hit much the same problems post COVID. We have staffing shortages throughout the Southwest. I have now seen staffing shortages also in the Midwest. They are getting severe in the Great Lakes states, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Illinois. We just saw a strike that just ended in Seattle, uh, Washington, Mm -hmm. where the issue wasn't pay. The issue was, quite honestly, they're asking so much of so few. Mm -hmm. And the school being unable to provide those. I am fortunate enough to have been trained in education. I did the K-12 training. I went to the K-12 boot camps, all those things to get a Texas credential after moving to Texas and COVID hit. And it just made sense with that background that if the school told us they could not provide her needs, mm-hmm. um, if they could not provide the supports that would result in her success to be the best student she could be, then I went back, as you would say, into the trenches to do daily lesson plans for all of the 
the third grade and previously the second grade materials. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's heartbreaking. I know professors who are homeschooling. I know teachers who, like myself, have chosen to step away from teaching because they have children with autism or children with um, severe physical disabilities. And the reason that's so important is if you have a child with severe physical disabilities, especially in middle school or high school where they're larger, they might need a paraprofessional to use the restroom. They might need a paraprofessional to lift them out of a wheelchair. My oldest is in a back brace. She needs help getting in and out of the brace. And the schools now have a traveling nurse. So the nurse is at one school one day, another school another day, and then they have AIDS. But without a nurse there, she has a problem with her back brace. Who is the qualified person to help her? Uh, I, this is our new reality until these shortages are resolved. I will say that I previously lived in uh, Pennsylvania, Minnesota, California. So, so my wife and I have lived in these various states and it didn't matter whether it was a so-called red state or a blue state. Mm -hmm. The shortages in special ed are severe. They are national and I don't have a good solution, but it keeps throwing parents into the trenches because parents have to fill so many of these voids. I know parents who volunteer in classrooms, who act as the paraprofessional. I know parents who went into education or became teacher's aides and got their certifications to help because they had a special needs child. I don't know when we will get out of this because in my, in my lifetime, it has been like this. I began student teaching in 1988. Mm -hmm. I, I, I have not seen a change. If anything, I have seen shortages increase. So for special ed, I think the sad reality is that many special ed teachers and parents are in the trenches and have been in the trenches. And until there is some sort of magical fountain of cash and people, mm -hmm. um, that won't get solved. I do want to say that money doesn't solve it because I have been in meetings at universities that I work with and the university will say, we have this grant for an autism program. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. And they say, but we cannot find a certified uh, psychiatrist or psychologist to take mm -hmm. the position. So it's not just the money. It is the lack of skilled professionals and teachers with those certifications. It's, no matter how good a teacher is, and I know some very, very talented teachers, special ed is different. You can't take yeah. just a calculus teacher and say, tomorrow you're doing special ed. And, and I, I understand that. And I'm, I'm, it, it just breaks my heart that we can't, we can't fill the, those positions nationally. Yeah. It's like, I see um, some districts in my area have salary skills, you know, for the the regular band, then the hard to hire, and then the extremely hard to hire, which could be the autism specialist, the speech language path, those types of things. But like you said, not enough people are going into those fields or want to work in a K-12 district. They might be doing it through a, a consultancy or other, you know, businesses where they're just put out into the schools or, you know, into people's homes. But yeah, no, I, and, and the fact that it's been going on for you know, close to 35 years. It's just, 
I mean, I've seen it not change, right? And that's that's just a, you're shedding a light on something that is really frustrating for people who are in your situation and, like you said, have to now homeschool your child. Um, I do want to say that in Pennsylvania, western southwestern Pennsylvania, there's an organization called Glade Run with Lutheran Family Services, and they have an autism program. But what they have been doing is they've been funding the paraprofessionals at a discount rate to school districts to go in. Okay. Think about what this means. You have to have a charity raise the money to pay half the salary to have mm-hmm. the behavioral support specialist in the classroom. Mm-hmm. And the school district pays money too. So you end up with these subcontractors in yeah. Pennsylvania. I saw that also in Minnesota. Um, there's a, a private company that, that does it as well. And there are many nonprofits like ARC Minnesota, ARC Mid-State. Um, these organizations that are trying to fill the void with volunteers and parent volunteers that's wonderful that they're doing it, but shouldn't everyone in the classroom working with a child be a paid professional with benefits, with health care, with all of the things that go along with being a school district employee? And, and I'm not saying that I don't appreciate people who are volunteering every minute of every day to be there. As I said, my mother worked in special ed as a paraprofessional we have to pay these people as district employees. They deserve the vision, the health care, the dental care. They deserve the paid you know, leave. Asking volunteers to staff our schools is insane. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I know people are trying to come up with creative solutions, but yeah, I agree with you. Um, let's talk a little bit about um, your own uh, situation um, and being autistic and and having your own children. So how does being autistic change parenting? Coming from a neurodiverse background, I am very aware of the times that I spent with special supports or without them through Mm -hmm. K-12 and and later on in life. And when you talk to autism advocates, there are a lot of strong views on the supports, what which are positive or negative supports, which programs do and don't work. And I, I certainly do have strong opinions on those. But the reality is that without supports of some kind, I would not be uh, Professor Wyatt, right? I wouldn't be Dr. Wyatt. I wouldn't have been uh, someone who went through a master's program, an MFA program, a PhD program. Those supports are so key to success. And thankfully, because my mother became one of those paraprofessionals in the classroom and my mother worked within education and knew how to advocate, um, that is a that is a lesson that I've taken to heart. So when it comes time for my children to have their individualized education program plans put together, their IEPs, their 504s, there are other supports that are mandated that vary by state. I, I can be there. I can give input. I can be a voice for them that maybe not every parent can be. I can, I can explain to the school district asking my daughter what's bothering her um, 
isn't going to get you the answer you expect, whether it's my eldest or my youngest asking one of my daughters a question, they may or may not be able to answer in a way you understand. They can't always contextualize how they feel. And so in some ways, I am empowered by my experiences to say, here's what I was going through. And I want you to understand that unless you are neurodiverse in some way, you may not be understanding her light sensitivity or sound sensitivity or why the chaos of the classroom isn't quite appropriate for her needs. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and this would, would vary by daughter. And my daughters have different needs too. My eldest, um, so Lee is not body aware. And I don't know how to explain that to someone, but today before our our chat, we had to take her to the optometrist, not because she knew there was a problem, but because I noticed at at a meeting that we had for her robotics team, she kept leaning forward, leaning forward, trying to read and just could never Mm -hmm. read the the presentation screen, the slides. Mm -hmm. And I kept asking her, what does it say? Can you read it? She kept saying no. But if when we went to the optometrist, they asked her, are your eyes okay? She said, yes, I can see. Hmm. Well, asking her which she could see better, you know, lens one, lens two, she couldn't really give answers. So we had to go through an hour and 15 minute vision test instead of the normal 15, 20 minutes, because Mm -hmm. she couldn't express clearly what was and wasn't working. She has, as I said, um, Lee has a scoliosis brace. She can't mm. really explain to the doctors when it's not fitting right. What I have to do is I have to see the bruises on her body and say, honey, you have a bruise on your back. We need to get the brace adjusted. Mm-hmm. So this lack of awareness of her own needs is something the teachers don't understand. They're like, oh, well, if she can't see, she'll tell us. Other students do. Yes, another student might say, I can't see the board, may I move? Another student might say, the lights are bothering me, I'm getting a headache. She can't make that connection. So Lee, who is diagnosed with autism, can't make that connection and give voice to it. She cannot advocate for herself. I have to be, and you know, mommy has to be the eyes and ears for her who say there's a problem. For and it's a little different and goes into flight mode. She will scream. She will throw what people think of as a tantrum because when she's overwhelmed. And we have to explain to the teachers that when you see her screaming in agony and crying, it's not that she's upset. It's that she hurts. Something has overstimulated her. So knowing my autism and my neurodiversity I am better able to try to be a buffer between the teacher who doesn't understand the behaviors and trying to explain that every behavior of a child is a form of communication. Whatever the child is doing, they're trying to tell you something. And they may only know to scream for help. They may scream, I hate you, or I hate this place. I hate this room. What they're really saying is something in that room is causing them stress. And it doesn't matter if it's ADHD, OCD, PTSD, dyslexia, synesthesia. It really doesn't matter what neurodiverse condition we're talking about. The teachers don't always understand that a behavior is a form of communication. They also don't understand traumatized children all the time. We don't, teachers, we're rushing through credentials right now to get people in the classroom. And 
too many programs have a semester of special education for every teacher. And again, I've seen this nationally. I'm not pointing to any one state. Your teacher education program is a year or two after your bachelor's degree at best. They don't have time to teach you to be a psychologist. But we need teachers to understand traumatized kids who aren't getting meals at home, who are seeing abuse, who have seen violence, who have PTSD. Maybe they are just, as I said, neurodiverse. When they're acting out and we label them as troublemakers and we give them detention and we do all of these things like taking away their PE time, we might actually be doing more harm and causing more trauma. We see this uh, sadly with children from minority backgrounds are more likely um, to be classified as troublemakers when really what they might have is a neurodiverse condition. Mm-hmm. Um, we see a lot, just statistical evidence points to a lot of children who are getting in trouble for what might be neurodiversity instead of mm-hmm. um, that being noticed. Teachers just see a troublemaker. Um, so again, being a neurodiverse parent, I can step in and do that. And, and hopefully what I explain to teachers gives them a new way to look at every student in that class, not just mm-hmm. my daughters. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What do you suggest um, the awareness of intolerance is of all autistics isn't enough? Because like a lot of people say, well, we're aware of the situation. Um, but like you said, they're not really fully um, trying to use these trauma-informed practices. And acceptance is putting the student in the classroom. So you accept the student and we're going to mainstream the student. Uh, That's nice. But what if the peers don't integrate with that child? What if Mm -hmm. that child is not, the child is not included. So you can have inclusion where you're saying we're accepting and we're bringing the student into the classroom. But if the student isn't actively engaged with others, isn't actively included by others, what you're really doing is setting up the student to feel like an outsider. And when I have observed, I'll, I'll be brought in by a school district and let's say I go into a high school class and I notice in the classroom, the science lab, that the student who is neurodiverse, gifted science student with ADHD and maybe what used to be called PDD and OS, very mild, high functioning, whatever you wanna call it, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but that's neurodiversity. Uh, PDD is pervasive developmental disorder. It just Mm -hmm. means the child is awkward socially. Mm -hmm. And we have, you know, unfortunately, we have turned this into a clinical term and a disorder, but that's part of the autism spectrum disorder now. Mm -hmm. And I'll observe, and this student is being excluded. The teacher says, oh, well, he can do the work or she can do the work. So I'll let that student sit over there by his or herself. And all of the other students are talking about the lab and they're engaged in the lab. And and the student will say, "Um, I'm not being part of the class. I'm here. I'm included. They're aware of me. They're tolerating me. Mm -hmm. Great. They're tolerating that I can do the work, but I don't feel valued. Tolerating someone doesn't value them. We can tolerate difference, Mm -hmm. but tolerating isn't the same as embracing. Yeah. I can tolerate my neighbor. That doesn't mean I'm embracing my neighbor. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that I'm including them and engaging with them and learning from them. What it means is we're occupying a shared space. Well, so what? And too often I hear about inclusivity of, well, we hire autistics. Uh, we hire 
workers with Down syndrome or people with other differences. Uh, that's not enough. Hiring someone with a difference and giving them a job on an assembly line isn't including them. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's not truly including. It's not truly you're accepting and you're tolerating, but are you really integrating? And I think integration into society is the key. If someone mm -hmm. isn't integrated into the activity, the classroom really is giving the illusion of equality, the mm -hmm. illusion of diversity. Mm -hmm. And too often that's what these programs do is they say, oh, well, we have mainstreamed. Uh, we have integrated because we have the bodies in the room. Well, that that's not enough. It's not mm -hmm. enough. Mm -hmm. No, I, I completely see how like, you know, the example you gave of a student not feeling like they're really part of the class. Um, kids are used to seeing others mainstream, but really, you know, they're kind of cut off socially from the rest of the class. Um, Let me and touch on that is sure. so my PhD research started off as could the accommodation that was being offered to university students largely and college students, which was online learning, could mm -hmm. that really meet the needs of neurodiverse students? And I'm going to give an answer that's not popular among online education scholars, but no, it isn't the same. Mm -hmm. It is not the same. You have one student or two students who are taking a hybrid course solely online and other students who are getting to interact face to face. If the pandemic has not taught us anything else, I hope it has taught us the value of being with other people. I know a lot of people say, well, I feel like I'm with people on Facebook. Research time and time again says you're just not. That computer-mediated communication Communication where it's controlled by the computer, we call it computer mediated yeah. communication, is not the same. A smiling emoji is not the same. It doesn't trigger the same serotonin. It doesn't trigger the same parts of the brain as actually seeing someone smile in the same room. Yeah. Our mirror neurons do not fire the same way. Our wiring for social engagement is not triggered in the same fashion. So mm -hmm. when we say it's the same, yes, someone could learn online. A dedicated learner can learn online and can thrive online academically. But success in our society is not just about academics. Again, research has found this with uh, truly gifted individuals. You can take truly gifted individuals and find and trace them, uh, do a a linear study where you're studying them throughout life and longitudinal studies will find that being gifted can be just as much of an impediment as any other form of neurodiversity mm -hmm. if you never develop social skills. That is why having the autistic student, the ADHD student, the OCD student, the PTSD student in a classroom learning, maybe not perfect uh social interactions as we might describe them. I will never be perfect socially. I will always be a little awkward. But learning to say to other people, you know, forgive me, I'm a little different. I may not make good eye contact. I may not have perfect vocal control, but I would mm. really like to be part of this team. Yeah. And that's again, getting into that self-advocacy. Mm -hmm. Online Online is not just the same. Ask any parent. Does it feel the same when you talk to your kid on the phone or when you see your, your son or daughter at Christmas and can hug them? Right. Yeah. It's just, 
there is something different. And so even as a researcher, I find that online education was valuable, but one reason we saw so much drop off was the bonds were not there. And I think half of what makes a good teacher is the bond that he or she develops with the students. Yeah, definitely. I really um, saw that like during the pandemic and like I did a, my doctorate completely online, right? Oh. And I know, well, it was, a, it was a convenient way and I didn't yep. have to wait until the next school year. I wanted to start it in October of 16. And, you know, it, but there wasn't even Zoom integration. It was just the chat rooms and you know, answering questions. There wasn't really, um, you know, you didn't see or talk to the people even, even through an online medium. So, yeah, I mean, I've done my other graduate work and undergrad work all in person. So, you know, I could really tell how that was quite different. But um, yeah, I agree. And what we forget is, as we're, as we're training students in college and universities, mm -hmm. now, if you already have a career, I believe online education is a wonderful way to advance your career. Correspondence courses helped people for the last hundred years. Yeah. But undergraduate students and K-12 students are nurturing relationships that will later be useful in the workplace, whether yeah. it's a nonprofit, a government agency, or just life in general. Yeah. And those social networks that I developed in my undergraduate education have been far more valuable to me later in life than I ever expected. Mm -hmm. But that was face-to-face -face in classrooms. And those are friendships that I formed with other, other students. Virtual students, it's very hard to get that same connection and that same loyalty and that same sense of community for a university or a college. And we saw it with high schools and elementary schools students didn't really feel like they were part of the school yeah it's really hard to get that connection through through zoom um, let's talk a little bit about some of the uh, questions that you receive uh, when you're at education conferences in terms of sex and relationships among neurodiverse um, teens or young adults this podcast is a proud member of the teach better podcast network better today better tomorrow and the podcast to get you there. Explore more podcasts at www.teachbetterpodcastnetwork.com. Now let's get back to the episode. Social aspects of school, starting even as early as fifth, sixth grade, start mm -hmm. to really affect student performance. Mm -hmm. And we as parents know this, right? We all hear about the first crush. We hear about who likes who, or she's not talking to me because some new girl came to campus and... This is what affects young mm -hmm. people. And as teachers, we eventually come to understand, I think, with more and more experience, you see this maybe first and second year teachers, they try to think, I'm just teaching science, I'm just teaching geography, or I'm just teaching third grade or fifth grade. But it's really quick in your career, right? Very quickly, you realize, oh my gosh, somebody broke up with somebody else, and now her grades are dropping or his mm -hmm. grades are dropping. So when I go to conferences, it never fails that after talking about academics and social skills, inevitably a teacher will ask, I have an autistic student, I have a student on the autism spectrum or a neurodiverse student in other ways. Mm -hmm. And Everyone else is dating. Everyone else has a boyfriend or girlfriend. And this person is slipping 
quickly. Um, I have taught, as I said, since 1988, I have lost three students while I was teaching to suicide. Wow. And I believe that we need to take mental health very seriously. We know this with, sadly, mass shootings and gun violence. We now know that we are further traumatizing our students with these live drills that we do. And let's do an active shooter pretend. Well, the social aspects of trauma can be very real for the neurodiverse. And because neurodiverse students don't always understand social signals, what happens is I will get a district call and they will say, we're about to expel a student for stalking. Mm -hmm. She won't leave this young man alone. He was friends with her. He was nice to her. And now she thinks they're boyfriend and girlfriend. Mm -hmm. And that's because neurodiverse people who are often bullied, often picked on, when someone is nice to them, they can, they can misunderstand it. Mm-hmm. It is very easy for someone who's neurodiverse to end up in abusive relationships. Mm-hmm. I have had teachers talk to me, especially, um, unfortunately, they're more alert and more aware of young women who are in abusive mm-hmm. relationships, but it does occur with boys. Um, And it does occur with those who are non-binary, who are um, gender fluid, LGBTQ plus. But often with young women, I will be asked about cutting, substance abuse, depression, Mm -hmm. because the neurodiverse, a lot of them experience trauma their whole lives. They've been alienated their whole lives. They've been experienced a trauma through therapies that tried to change who they were being forced to make eye contact, forced through aversion therapy to deal with noises they couldn't tolerate or sounds that uh, upset them, colors, you name it. They have been subject to so much pain and misery that the relationship stuff, especially for a young mind where the hormones are changing and this becomes so important, teachers will tell me that it is such a part of young life in the the middle school, junior high, high school ages that they just want to know what can I do or what should I do? Mm. I know this child wants a boyfriend or girlfriend. I know this child wants to go to the prom or feels alone. I know this person is struggling with identity at home and it might be rejected by parents. I will say the worst thing, and I know that this has led to some of the negative consequences I've seen personally as a teacher and and as a mentor, nothing is worse for these children than being rejected by their parents for, for being different uh, than what the parents religious background or cultural background expects. And when I speak to conferences and I'm asked about this, I tell them the first thing you need to do is talk to your guidance counselors. You're a teacher first, if you are the classroom teacher. If you are the classroom teacher, you are not a mental health professional. Please do not try to be one. It will drain you and take you away from the job that you are hired to do. If, however, you are like I am and do consulting and do this work, and this is part of uh, what you, you do, even as a teacher, you also have to take care of all of your rights and responsibilities at legally. Every teacher in every state is a mandated reporter. Mm -hmm. 
So when we hear about abusive relationships, whether it's at home or at school, it's a whether it's a parent or a boyfriend or girlfriend or a classmate, we are legally obligated to report these things. I have been asked, well, I have an autistic student and she really likes sensory input. And I think she's getting sexually active too young with someone who's older. I always talk to your guidance counselor. You have to report this, follow your school policies. Be aware if your state has a child line that you need to report to if she's underage and you suspect something inappropriate is happening. These are things that teachers need to be aware of. And because neurodiverse individuals don't have the same executive function and the same awareness of, of structures and rules that others might have, mm -hmm. as teachers, we are the defense these children need. We can be that person who files a child line. We can be that person who contacts a foster system mm -hmm. uh, if we think a foster child's being abused. Mm -hmm. We can be that person who sits down with the counselor and says, I've noticed some strange marks uh, or some bruises or something. Uh, and you say it to the counselor and ask, do I need to file the child line now that I've talked to you? What is our state's uh, reporting policy? What is our district's reporting policy? Mm -hmm. We have to know these things. So when I go to conferences, the questions that come up about sex and gender, I always point out that the reason you're asking this is you suspect something. Now, if it's mm -hmm. good, great. If you suspect that some child is or some young adult is interested, then that set up something so you can talk to the parent, but follow procedure, always follow procedure. You're bringing up the question at an academic conference because you're worried about something. You're not bringing it up out of the blue. You're not just, mm -hmm. hey, what, what about sex and autism? You're doing it because you think a student who is neurodiverse in your class or at your school has a problem. That's the only reason you'd ask the question. And sadly, every single conference I've done, that question has come up. I cannot think of a time when a teacher didn't ask during the conference or out in the hallway, I have a student and I think the social aspects are causing some issues. What do I do? Mm -hmm. And I think that we need to know, again, in every state, we are mandated reporters and ideally we have wonderful counselors supporting us. Sadly, I know that's not always true. Mm -hmm. I understand that. Um, but it's not your job to shield the child in any way, shape or form other than to act as an advocate contact that child line, contact your principal, contact your guidance counselors, contact the school nurse if you think there's something even more serious. It breaks my heart that these questions come up yeah. and I wish they didn't. More often than not, it is peers who are bullying, sexually assaulting, um, engaging in gender or sexual orientation discrimination against a student. It has even been the case where a teacher was using slurs and inappropriate um, teasing. Mm -hmm. A teacher may have an autistic student who is gender fluid or non-conforming in some mm -hmm. way. And I had a case where I was, the teacher said to, a student, nice, to, nice of you to come into class, girlfriend. And it was to a non 
biological female student. And it was not meant as a supportive, I'm embracing your identity. It was Mm -hmm. meant as an insult. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So again, when we talk about uh, autism, one of the things we do see is there's higher rates of non-conformity within the autistic community. Mm -hmm. There are higher rates of LGBTQ uh, identity. We don't know the correlation Research out of the UK has found that many of the women who are diagnosed as autistic or otherwise neurodiverse do happen to cross uh, sexual orientation lines or Mm -hmm. be asexual. And obviously some of the most famous ones like Temple Grandin, who is reported, she is asexual. She Mm -hmm. is happy without a romantic relationship. Mm -hmm. People can be very mean if you're not what they perceive as normal. Mm -hmm. Hmm. Yeah, and that's that's a whole conversation to have. Um, just kind of about what what's coming, kind of these I would say past several years of what we're seeing from kids, and you know the the fluid um, you know identity and all that. But like you said, it's it's just listening to the child and and being the reporter to those people that can help the child further. Um, but you also suggested um, how uh, autistics need to. Uh, advocate for themselves. So why do you suggest they should disclose their needs at school and at work? There are several reasons for this disclosure, not the least of which is legal protection. Mm -hmm. In the workplace, you are only covered by the Americans with Disabilities Act if you disclose. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, universities, colleges, tech schools, our post-secondary system does not fall under IDEA, the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act. So we have students who get IEPs, they get 504 plans, but then they go to college or trade school and experience uh, failure because they expect an IEP or they expect a 504 Mm. plan. And what happens is those things don't exist after K-12. So during K-12, many parents are worried about this. Will my child be stigmatized? But my daughters know they're neurodiverse. They know that they have ADHD. They both are diagnosed as ADHD. With Lee, she knows she's autistic. She has no problem saying, I have autism. I may speak in a different way. I may have certain needs. Mm -hmm. I think that Teaching a fifth grader, a lot of people are like, oh my gosh, how can you burden your daughter so much? It's who she is. She's always going to be autistic. It's not like it goes away. It's it's not a, so no, she, I love her and she is who she is and she should not be ashamed to say, I have autism and so I'm sensitive to certain sounds. Could you please mm-hmm. turn down the volume? I don't, no problem at all, especially teaching her how to phrase it so it can be a polite request, a polite mm-hmm, advocacy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And for, you know, Anne is, Anne is only in uh, third grade and, and mm-hmm. we're homeschooling her because she has a new first year teacher and it wasn't working. Um, unfortunately, the, and I don't blame the teacher. She, we're, as I said, we're in a shortage right now. Mm-hmm. I think a more experienced teacher would have understood But a kid who's getting up and running around, teachers want students to sit down, pay attention, Mm -hmm. look this way, you know, sit up straight. 
a student with ADHD is not equipped for all of that, and we need to stop forcing them to be. An experienced teacher might know that. A first-year teacher is still following all of the rules that their teacher education yeah. program gave them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So being a self-advocate, it might not be appropriate at third grade, but by fifth and sixth, as you're getting ready for middle school and then yeah. junior high, high school, I think it's perfectly appropriate for a child to sit down with the parent and maybe their psychiatrist, psychologist, their, their family physician, maybe it's your clergy, uh, your, your uh, pastor, your imam, your, uh, your connections, whoever they are. Yeah whoever you feel comfortable with your rabbi might uh, your, your rabbi might have something that they know about sitting down and disclosing and how this is, is done. What I have found is that it doesn't matter who it is. Those, those mentors can help your child learn how to navigate your culture, your schools, your, your community. Yeah. So we sit down with our children and say, okay, you're going to have special needs. So when you do go to work, you're going to want to say things. Otherwise, your employer might think you're just being difficult. And you don't want to be a difficult employee. What you do is you go in and say, I have these sensitivities. They are documented. They are covered by ADA. Mm -hmm. um, I really want to be the best employee and I want to be the best person for the job. I want to be the best student I can be at this college. Here are my needs. How can we work together so I yeah. succeed and we succeed as a team? And mm -hmm. that's something that I think I, I wish we taught every child to do this because sure. when I'm teaching business communications or, or a business course, I tell my students, there is nothing wrong with going to an employer and couching it as, I want to be the best employee I can be to benefit this company. Here are some of my special needs. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't matter if you're mobility challenged, if you have a learning disability, a vision impairment, hearing impairment, it doesn't matter. Just telling an employer, I want to be the best employee you've ever had. I want to be great for you, but I'm going to need some help getting there first. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, and how can we do that? There was a story on the internet, and I want to say it was from Forbes, and I, I would need to verify the, the source. Mm -hmm. A gentleman was sitting on a stool after a leg injury on an assembly line. Mm -hmm. And this was in the news last year during uh, COVID. So the, you're going to work during COVID, bravo, good for you in the first place. Mm -hmm. But the guy was sitting on a stool from a leg injury. His assembly line numbers were still among the best, but he got reprimanded for laziness for sitting on the stool. Mm -hmm. All he really should have done was go to that employer and say, I have a leg injury. It happened on the job. Here's my medical excuse. I will still be the best employee I can be. May I please use this stool to be productive? Now, I fault the manager for also not checking that this guy was doing great anyway. Mm -hmm. But that goes back to what I said about teachers, managers. We need to ask questions as teachers, as managers, as employers, as supervisors, principals, and listen to what the student or the employee says. Yeah. And I don't think we should, we should someday have a world without ADA, without mm -hmm. IEPs, without 504 plans. Someday we should have a, the ability to listen to the student and just say, sure, I can move your seat. Oh, you need a mouse that uh, instead of a trackball or you need a trackball instead of a mouse. 
Maybe you need some other accommodation to be the best student or best employee you can be. What can we do to make that happen? Instead, we make students advocate for themselves. A student at the university has to get a diagnosis, has to go to disability services, has to disclose to everybody I'm disabled as if that's something that they should be ashamed of. Why do we call it disclosure? Mm-hmm. And why do we make mm-hmm. it sound like, oh my gosh, you know, HIPAA violations and all these FERPA, the Family Educational Rights and Privacy Act. I wish we didn't need any of that. I wish the disabled, myself included, felt like I could just go up to a teacher and say, I have a palsy. Some days I will shake. Mm-hmm. Some days I won't. Some days I will have a cane. Some days I won't. And just have the teacher listen and say, oh, okay. I will let you know if, you know, let me know if you need anything. I still, to this day, remember a professor writing me up for tapping my cane and being a distraction. When that's not what we need. So I want my children to be self-advocates who can walk up to a teacher and say, I have special needs. I have talked to disability services or I have an IEP. I have a 504, whatever it is. And with confidence and with pride, say, I want to be the best student I can be. And so I want to help you as a teacher or as a boss, give me those services. Here's Mm -hmm. what I need. Here's what we need to do as a team. Yeah, yeah. It's that uh, forming a team with the educators and, you know, really, like you said, fifth and sixth grade and up uh, advocating for your needs. Um, On the other side, how can educators embrace neurodiversity especially if they're like uh, your uh, third graders, a new, brand new teacher, uh, people who do not have a lot of experience working with kids with neurodiversity. Our education system is not neurodiversity friendly. Yeah. Um, Our culture is not. We want children to sit still in a desk for 40 minutes at a time on task. Well, in a room that might have decorations on every wall, colors Mm -hmm. everywhere, things hanging from the ceiling, noises outside, interruptions from the intercom. And then we wonder why a student with ADHD, with dyslexia, with synesthesia, uh, with dyscalculia, whatever it is, right? We wonder Mm -hmm. then, why can't they concentrate? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Really? Well, gee, You're asking students to behave in a way that no other culture does. I just had a a debate with the local education uh, body. Uh, We're in regions here in Texas. Mm -hmm. They want students to learn slant, which is to sit straight, lean forward, be attentive, ask questions. You know, it's make eye contact, take notes, nod. (laughs) It's this big, long list of things that spell S-L-A-A-N-T, slant, Mm -hmm. whatever. Mm -hmm. And I commented, what about the child who is dyslexic and is struggling to take notes and listen? And then Mm -hmm. you tell them they can't bring a laptop to school, even though a laptop for dyslexics has been proven to be better. Mm -hmm. You're going to say, oh, no, you have to take handwritten notes to a dyslexic. You know, or you're going to say you have to make eye contact eye contact for an autistic is is painful and and what is the social thing about okay now listen lean forward and nod Mm -hmm. 
So they're training these first year teachers for what we consider normal social behavior in a Western culture. Yeah. I have a cousin who is uh, teaching, I think this year in, oh, one moment. Uh, Oh, dear. Um, I'm going to get this right. Where was uh, Casablanca? Where was Casablanca set? The, the great uh, movie. Northern right? Morocco. Morocco. Thank you. My cousin mm-hmm. is teaching in Morocco this year. Previously, she taught in Hong Kong, right? Mm-hmm. And I've taught in multiple states and different students from different cultures yeah. uh, at the university. I've had students from Korea, Japan, uh, obviously Germany, some, part, some stu- parts of Africa, some parts of South America. Different cultures have different expectations. And these first-year teachers are imposing an American extroverted, socially dynamic way of learning and behaving that an introvert, that someone from a Somali culture, that someone from Hmong culture, that someone from maybe the South Korean culture would not understand and cannot adapt to. Mm-hmm. And we're asking autistic students and ADHD students and people from all these different cultures to behave like little automatons and sit quietly for 40 minutes. and. And then we punish them if they don't sit by taking away their recess. Mm -hmm. Well, the whole reason the kid is up and active is that child has ADHD and needs to move to reset his or her brain. And every expert on ADHD or autism will tell you they need the movement. They need to fidget to self-regulate to get back. So what do they do? The teacher takes away recess, (laughs) the very thing that would reset Mm -hmm. the child. Yeah. So our first year teacher education programs, I have no idea how to cram in more, right? Mm -hmm. We cram Mm -hmm. in so much into that single year or two that most states require. Uh, And now with emergency credentials and boot camps, I don't know how to do this. We need to teach teachers that their expectations are based on norms, not on everybody, yeah. Not everybody is going to look at you. My daughter can be doodling and repeat every word you said. Because mm-hmm. the doodling is how she's self-regulating. Mm-hmm. We, I don't know how we teach first-year teachers this. And the problem is, is first-year teachers think that a quiet classroom is a well-managed classroom. And that classroom management is emphasized in every single state in I've watched teachers every single state where I've renewed or pursued renewing my credential Mm -hmm, in mm K-12. Every one of these programs in every state has had this idealized behavior for students. Yeah. Can we please stop it? And I don't know that I can because every educational professional has been influenced by behaviorists like B.F. Skinner. They've all been influenced by Piaget. They have all been influenced by a history of scholars that they are right for the average normal quote unquote person. I don't think there is a normal. I don't think there is a neurotypical. I I hate the phrase neurodiverse because no brain works. (laughs) No, No brain is normal. But I do not know how we tell teachers that you need to be prepared to listen to every child and every parent because not every child is going to fit your expectations. Now, Mm -hmm. I'm not saying we have to put up with every disruption. I'm not saying we have to tolerate everything and meltdowns. What I'm saying is we need to pay attention to those and work with the parent to make something that works for that child. 
Um, but discipline and aversive reactions, aversion, uh, taking away things. Aversive is I'm going to punish you in some way. I'm going to take away a privilege. I'm going to cut your recess. I'm going to take away your, your free reading time. I'm going to make you do something extra. I'm going to assign you extra work. Aversions don't change the brain. And if mm -hmm. anything, they're imposing yet more trauma and making the child hate learning. Mm -hmm, we mm -hmm. need to find ways that instead of giving a kid a timeout, giving a kid a, a punishment, we need to find ways to bring that child in. We need to find ways to ask that child, how would you feel if I was on the floor screaming right now? Yeah, yeah. Now, how can we work together so you're not doing that? Because it is disrupting mm -hmm. the class. Again, if we can't make those connections with the students and that student's guardians or parents, um, that's when we fail. And unfortunately, the, the greatest complaint I get from parents and from college students who are neurodiverse is the professor didn't listen. The teacher didn't listen. They went to the IEP meeting. They were at the 504 plan. They filled out the forms and they do the check boxes, but they didn't really understand and listen. And I've had teachers say, well, I've got 15 kids out of 30 with IEPs, which is, is it, we are living in a world where 15% of children have a registered disability. So it is not uncommon in some schools to have nearly half of your students on medications for ADHD, um, for behavioral uh, issues, for medical mm -hmm. conditions. And we, we have to remember that we're asking teachers to do extra paperwork for the IEP, extra lesson planning in some cases in their minds. We need to better train teachers so, and we need to better implement these programs so instead of feeling like extra work, a teacher has time to focus on the student. I have, I've told teachers that think about it during the pandemic. You were putting up notes online. You were mm -hmm. preparing your lesson plans for all students with all learning disabilities. An inclusive classroom that's truly inclusive, that's truly integrated, you have your notes you have a recorded lecture. You have your PowerPoint available for all parents. Mm -hmm. You are including everybody by how you deliver everything in multiple ways. Now your IEP statements and your 504 plan statements are easy. Every mm -hmm. lecture has notes. Every lecture has audio, a podcast. Every lecture has... Now you don't have to do it individualized because you've done it for every student, whether they have an IEP or a 504, can choose. I want to read the notes or I want to hear the lecture. I want to uh, watch a video on Khan Academy or I want to pursue the knowledge as a, as a text. But teachers aren't taught this, especially first year teachers. They are made to feel like serving the needs of the IEP, uh, which in Texas is called an ARD, by the way. Um, when we are preparing for these IEPs and 504 plans, we are making it sound like a burden. We're turning it into a paperwork mission instead mm -hmm. of individualized education. That's mm -hmm. in the name, but that's not what it becomes. It becomes a checklist and a legal, let's cover ourselves so we don't get sued. And I, like I said, I wish we didn't need any of this, that just every, every teacher, especially beginning teachers, had mentors that told them, 
the key to your success as a teacher is listening well. When you yeah. listen to your students mm-hmm. and you listen to the parents, you will be a better teacher. Yeah, that's so important to remember. Well, we've talked so much about um, your experience as a parent, um, having kids advocate for themselves, uh, questions that you get at educator conferences. Out of everything we've talked about today on the podcast, what's one thing you'd like listeners to remember? What I hope everyone takes away whenever I speak, whenever I do any podcast uh, appearance, is that listening is the key. And someone will say, well, I hear you on a podcast and you talk, right? My own podcast, one of the things a a recent guest said was, I listened to several of your shows and timed it. And you talked about six minutes and the guest talked for 50. Mm -hmm. That's what a good teacher does too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. When I watch a good teacher, the teacher will not care how long a question goes unanswered. They will Mm -hmm. wait until someone answers. Mm-hmm. And that's hard for a teacher. You might have a lesson plan and you say, okay, what is the capital of, you know, you give a, a country or, or somewhere, you know, what, mm-hmm. or a state, right? Um, and because they're impatient, they'll say, okay, well, nobody got it, but the capital of California is Sacramento. Let's go on. Mm-hmm. Learning to not answer is the most difficult thing for a teacher. Silence bothers teachers. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a learned skill, that wait time. It is. And learning to ask a student a question, you look confused. Is there something you don't understand? And if they just say, no, I'm okay, trust your hunch. If your hunch says they don't understand something, then wait for a better answer. Yeah. Tell, and what I do is I tell teachers, start turning that in deeper. Well, what did you understand? Can you tell me about what mm-hmm. you understood? And then mm-hmm. when that, te- that student that the teacher thought wasn't clear on something, it's funny when you ask that student, can you tell me what you're clear on since you said there's no problem, you're not confused? When you ask them to tell you what they understand so well, suddenly when you're listening to them, you'll, you'll, you'll hear, oh, that's what they thought I said, but that's not what I meant. Now I can correct it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. As a teacher, your job is to read that body language. It's to read that tilted head, that that raised eyebrow. Again, Zoom takes that away. The computer takes that away. If someone's a little box that has their initial. So as a teacher, listening is not always about the words a student says. Sometimes it can be that raised eyebrow. And you stop and you ask and you wait for a good answer. And if you don't get a good answer, you ask another question that will force the student to get to where you are. And that's really the key to everything. Even I think it's good parenting too, right? A good parent, we, we ask the question at dinner, how was your day at school? And if my daughter says it was good, my next question is in what way was it good? Yeah. And she'll look at me like, "Uh Oh, I have Mm -hmm. to answer. I was trying not to answer. (laughs) because <laughs> that's what it means oh it's okay what that yeah. really means is i don't want to talk about it yeah 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 and part of a parent you know a lot of parents i meet with oh no she said her day was good and so i went on ask her what was good about it ask your yeah. son what was good about it. if your son your son goes to baseball practice and says oh it was good said, so what did you like about baseball today mm-hmm. so for a teacher that's my thing Learning to listen isn't about just what the student says. It can be the language that isn't spoken. Mm -hmm. When you listen, you're a better teacher. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's so important to remember. 
Well, where can people connect with you and find you online? Sure. The Autistic Me is on Facebook as just Autistic Me. At Autistic Me on Twitter, there is also the Autistic Me blog and podcast. The podcast I have rebranded as Perspectives on Neurodiversity. Okay. Again, because I decided I needed to be more inclusive. Mm-hmm. So, and I needed to integrate more voices. So, Perspectives on Neurodiversity is available on Apple, Spotify, Google Play, Amazon, and all of those wonderful places. Mm-hmm. So, if you just look for Autistic Me or Perspectives on Neurodiversity, you'll find the podcast, Facebook, even LinkedIn. I've I now created a LinkedIn page because so many professionals wanted to ask things, and I just found teachers were more comfortable in that professional space. So okay. LinkedIn, again, it's just Autistic Me. Just look for mm-hmm. LinkedIn and slash Autistic Me, and you'll find the, the blog and the podcast. Great, great. Well, thank you so much for being my guest on the Out of the Trenches podcast today. It was really um, very informative uh, talk we had today, and I think a lot of people will get a lot of um, great tips out of this conversation. So thank you so much. Again, I, I thank you so much for this opportunity. My book, Out of the Trenches, Stories of Resilient Educators, has now been published. Get it now at amzn.to slash 3b7-2z. Again, amzn.to slash 3b7hx2z. Check out the show notes on danagoodier.com to learn more about this guest and links to their social media. Please subscribe, share, rate, and review wherever you download this podcast. Tell your friends and colleagues about it. And if this episode resonates, especially with you, be sure to share it out on social media and tag me at Out of Trenches PC. 